Welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. This week is the Austrian Grand Prix, not to be confused with the Australian Grand Prix. Two totally different places. <laughs> but but you know what else that means this week? What does that mean this week? That is your favorite clip. It is one of my favorite clips. It is truly one of your favorite clips. Yeah, I get it. I am amused that you have still not lived down the legacy. I think it was two years ago you could not keep vocally straight the Australian Grand Prix and the Austrian Grand Prix. I One, I was not the only person who had that problem. And let me go back to... I did not have some, that problem. Let me go back to somebody calling the Hungaro Ring the Hunger Games. <laughs> Also not me. <laughs> no, that was you. <laughs> did not call. You, you, you had to pause several times to make sure that that did not happen. Just because I paused did not mean that I did it. Okay. And given some of the rivalries on track, I have a feeling we may be approaching the Hunger Games at some <laughs> point. Hey, we'll, t- we'll talk about that in a bit. Okay. But yes, it's the Austrian Grand Prix. Um, home of Red Bull. Of, it, it, it's one of his favorite races. Apparently. Our, <laughs> our studio audience is quite vocal about it. Um, home of Red Bull and, of course, favorite team principal, Toto Wolf. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's home of Red Bull, but we haven't seen Red Bull do great at this track. I don't understand it. It's they're supposed to be their track. They own the track. They do. And yet, it's not a good track for them. I have never understood that. You would think that the track that you own should be the track that you own. Yeah. And also remember, Nicky Loud is Austrian, too. Is he? I thought yes. he was German. No, he is Austrian as well. Oh. Uh, well, that makes sense why I like him, too. <laughs> but before we talk about this weekend, and of course... Uh, As tends to happen with most of the European races, we're recording between qualifying and the race. Yes. Don't search for information between those two after the race is already run, by the way. It was bad. Okay. Um, Before we get to that, we have some other news. Other news? So, one-time boss of the Stefan Grand Prix team which I don't think actually put a car on the track. I was going to say, should I be looking this person up in the big book, book of uh, all things Formula One? Uh, you, you can look them up. Um, but one-time boss of the former Stefan Grand Prix team, Zoran Stefanovic. Now, first off, you, you want to make sure that you do not confuse Zoran Stefanovic with the villain from the James Bond movie of You to a Kill. That, that's Max Zoran, different guy. Okay, so just don't... To- Zorin to- is not Zorin. Right. Totally now, what different. was this team's name? Zorin Stefanik from Zorin Grand Prix. He didn't actually get an entry with, with Stefan Grand Prix. Um, even though he claimed that the cars were done, they had signed a driver. They'd signed uh, Kazuki Nakajima to drive for the team, and the FIA denied him an entry. Well, he is going to try it again. He wants to have a team in place uh, so that they can start in the 2019 season. Uh, He set up facilities in Parma, Italy, 
not to be confused with Parma, Ohio. Again, two totally different places. <laughs> um, <laughs> he has set up facilities in Parma, Italy, and hired former Williams and Ferrari man Enrique Scalabroni to start putting together the technical aspects of the outfit. And supposedly he has already reached an agreement to use a wind tunnel facility. So we'll see what happens here. There, we don't have word that the FIA is opening up a slot for 2019. The process is always open. Jean Todd has been very adamant that uh, if they believe that a prospective team has a solid enough bid, they will extend that tender offer to them. As of right now, they are not doing that, but we will see where this goes. I mean, this could uh, this could disappear in a puff of smoke like we've seen several other bids. He is not listed in the great big book of all things Formula One under a constructor. I don't know how, because there's no like table of contents to be able to search by that type of thing since it's done by season. Ah, so okay. without knowing like what, but... Yeah, if I don't he didn't think they actually got the actual race. Entry. He may not be in this book. But I found another portion of this book that was fairly interesting. And then you got lost. And then I went away, far, far away. I got I went down a rabbit hole. Did you know that Chevy had a Formula One engine at one point? Um, it doesn't surprise me because Ford did. Yeah, but Ford was successful. <laughs> No, that at the very back of this book, and if you have not heard us talk about this book, it's called Formula One All the Races. It's by a man named Roger Smith. It goes back to 1950, and I believe he updates this every year. Our book ends in 2012. Um, we have not gotten an updated version. Yeah. But on the very back of the book, it lists like all the drivers. I believe they have won something. You have to have won something to get in this list. Otherwise, yeah. the, the list would be too long. All the constructors, all the engines... Um, and obviously, and it ranks them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just looked down the list of engines, which was pretty small, obviously. And um, all, so, and then he gives like the number of championships or things, things that races. Mm-hmm. Um, all victories for F1 and F2 from 1946 to 2012. Chevy had two. Well, Both of them existed between 46 and 83. Well, you know, that's two more than the current generation of Honda engine. It is. It is. Um, Honda's been listed here a couple of times because they yeah. had a couple of different iterations. But it's pretty interesting to see who ranks where and what. I mean, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, but you mentioned Ford. Mm-hmm. As of 2012, and things have shifted because Mercedes had such great years in the past few years. But Ford was listed as the second most winningest engine in Formula One. They still are. Uh, yeah, they should be. Mercedes had 97 wins by um, form- by 2012. And given the absolute rock star season, I mean, obviously I don't think they've made 100 wins. And that was the difference. Yeah. Um, but the rock star, they have probably propelled themselves solidly into the third place slot. Um, and Topping but, Renault. But there are, by some standards, because we've heard the statistic before, that Ford is actually the um, most successful engine 
used within uh, within Formula One, surpassing Ferrari. Um, it depends on who you talk to. Now, some of them may also be including, at one point, Ford was paired off with Cosworth, and Cosworth was also a very successful engine team. And I think if you, can, if you include the Cosworth wins in the Ford category, it pushes them up. Cosworth is not listed in this list for some reason. I, 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 this has no hmm. details as to how they broke these things out. Yeah. Um, but, <coughs> I mean, certainly, definitely dead heats with Ferrari. I think because they combine the F1, F2 championship victories... Mm, that um, could do it is too, then. what's pushing Ferrari ahead. Um, but overall, I mean, it's impressive. It is very impressive. Well, anyway, back to our show. Oh, okay. O- away from your book report. Okay. <clears throat> back to our show. So one of the things that has been in the news yet again, and, and we expected this, we knew this was coming into the season, that this was probably going to perk up right about now, is... The situation with Silverstone. Right. Because next weekend is when, if Silverstone elects to um, implement the exit clause from their hosting contract, it has to be done next weekend. Right. Now, we were watching Channel 4's qualifying coverage yesterday, Mm -hmm. and David Cothard weighed in on his thoughts and what he thinks is going to happen. Being a member of the BRDC, I hope he would kind of know. Well, the BBC also had Alex Vertz um, on the show Mm -hmm. and spoke to Alex about it. And Alex is the president of the BRDC, if I recall correctly. It's either the BRDC or the Grand Prix Drivers Association. But he's involved in this. And he has an idea of what's going on. He's still being a little cagey as to what's happening and why and how and all of that stuff. But the general assumption that everybody has is that Silverstone will, in fact, um, activate the clause. But everybody's theory is that this does not mean that the British Grand Prix is going away or that the British Grand Prix won't be hosted in Silverstone in 2020 or 2019, for that matter. Um, It's a a path to be able to renegotiate the price of the contract, right? Exactly. Exactly. By turning around and saying, we cannot sustain this, we are going to walk away, you then turn around and say, but we're willing to renegotiate the contract. Right. And that's what Cothard seemed to outline, was that it was not a, we don't want the the Grand Prix at Silverstone, or that we are incapable of doing the Grand Prix. It is that the terms of the contract are, how would one say it, tough. That they are too expensive. Because they have this incredible escalation, Bernie escalation clause in them. Yeah, it's, it's I don't remember off the top of my head if it's 5% or 15% every year. I think it was the, 5% every year the over. Cost, yeah, 5% every year, the cost goes up. Mm-hmm. It's it, it was insane. And not every track has that escalator clause. And not every track pays the FIA, or, or excuse me, now it's Formula One group. Not every track pays Formula One group fees to host the race. Monaco is one of those that does not pay any fees. They may be the only one, but the rate is different. So the th- one of the theories is that um, Formula One group and Liberty Media have come out and said that they value 
the European tracks. They see them as, as an important part of the history of Formula One and that it is vital to keep them associated with the sport and have them hosting races. Now, being that Silverstone was the host of the first ever Formula One World Championship race, that means it's kind of key and instrumental mm-hmm. to the history. So there's some thought there that, that Liberty and Formula One group probably want to keep them around. And I know this is going to sound kind of crazy, but there is, we don't, because we don't know all of the backdoor dealings, mm-hmm. there is nothing to say that Silverstone hasn't already gone to F1 group and said, look, we need to be able to renegotiate this. This is the way we want to do this. This is how we're going to do it. And the F1 group says, go ahead. We know what we're, you know, we're willing to renegotiate, but they can't come to the table until they've ended the current contract, which is what that, this becomes a legal step versus a big hoo-ha. But there's one other thing to roll around. And And again, we've talked about this before. There is another track within in england that is grade one certified and could host the british grand prix well it could so this does even if silverstone and formula one group can't come to terms it doesn't mean the british grand prix is going away right and i I just don't know that i don't think this is going to be as big a story as it sounds on the surface I mean, it's it's a headline story, but it honestly, is. I think what's going to happen is yes, we're going to have all these headlines about Silverstone exercises the exit clause, and then you know at the end of the season, uh, we're going to hear Formula One Group and Silverstone have come to a new agreement on a contract, and it's going to become the non-story. Well, Zach Brown over at McLaren has his own suggestion for how this should work. Oh. And, and actually, it was one of those things when I saw the headline, I'm like, that's kind of stupid. And then I read what Zach had to say, and I'm like, actually, when you think about it, well, Zach reminds everyone, for starters, that the BRDC owns the track, but they have been looking for somebody to buy the track. Correct. What Zach says, his view, is that Liberty should buy Silverstone. Hmm. What he says is much like the NFL, which is a pretty successful sport, obviously, they own the Super Bowl, which moves around. I think Silverstone is a great track. I sympathize sympathize if, with the escalator, it cannot make money, so we need to figure out a way for them to make money. So we either create new revenue streams or cut the deal. So what he suggests is, well, one, consider it as a a preseason testing venue, which I don't think will happen because it's too cold there. Right. The teams have complained about that. They, they use it for filming, and they're very careful because the weather's not great that time of year. But the other thing that he says is you could do an F1 Hall of Fame. You could do racing schools, which are there already, and eSports. If you own the property yourself, there is a lot of incremental activities. Now, again, he goes back to testing. He thinks instead of doing it in Barcelona for eight days, do it in Silverstone and really open it up to the fans – but he thinks it'd be a great acquisition. But this idea of if you turn around and you purchase Silverstone, Silverstone and you make it the true home of F1, you move the organization's offices there outside of Bernie's offices in London because he owns that building, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. But you put it there at Silverstone. You put things in there that are designed to engage fans in formula one outside of just 
the British Grand Prix weekend, you look at other ways that you can promote the sport as the home of F1, and you truly make it the home of F1. Yeah. You could do that. I mean, that would be super cool. Plus, you could get a tourism uh, bump year-round. Exactly. If you had a Hall of Fame there, if you had events going on there, you could get tourism and people who can't go to the the Grand Prix or are in England at different times than the Grand Prix coming to Silverstone. There's that. There's also the you have a really good reason to turn around and license and promote your brand on all of the schools and driving classes and experiences that occur over at Silverstone. And there's a lot of them. Yep. That could be super cool. We'll see. We'll see what, uh, I mean, Zach Brown came up with that. He needs to talk to his friend Eyebrows. Um, <laughs> yeah. See what, see what they can work out. No, I think in this case it'd be Chase Carey. Oh, so Hannibar. Yes. Wow. I'm telling you, I do not understand exactly why in order to be in the commercial rights business of Formula One, you must have unique hair. Well, what I don't know is if the folks, at least the, the leadership at Lagardere La Sport and Entertainment have unique facial hair. Mm. That's important because um, Formula One Group has stepped up their efforts to increase their profile and increase the sports profile in China. And they have signed with the marketing company Lagadere Sport and Entertainment to do that. Oh, wow. And, and, and this, this makes sense. You know, Bernie tried to do a push into China. Mm-hmm. We've got the race there that is sparsely, uh, sparsely uh, attended. Yes. They need to do something. I mean, there was reports 2011, 2012, that the Chinese government was bussing in folks and giving them free tickets so that there were bodies in the seats. There are parts of that track that are giant ads because they put tarps over the seats so that you don't see empty, the empty seats. It's like the Tsingtao beer ads that are on the, the, the last couple of corners there. Mm-hmm. So... Formula One, no, and, and, and this is what what Bernie saw and why he went there in the first place. I mean, you've got a big population there to market to. You've just got to figure out how to get them interested. Right. So that's what Formula One's trying to do. It, I don't think this is a bad idea. Mm-mm. I don't think this is a wrong plan. Okay. Speaking of Silverstone. Back to I know, Silverstone. We're, we're, we're bouncing back and forth. Wow. It's um, like you did show prep or something. Almost, but not really. No, we you never didn't. Did. <gasps> this week, and we'll try and get uh, the images so we can get them over on the website and get them up on Facebook so you can see them. But this week, the FIA revealed the first image of the shield device for head protection. Yeah. We'll see it in person in Silverstone. That, that we're going to see the first couple of runs with it, which I'm guessing if, if they do what they do with the Halo... Um, it's going to be, let's slap it on, do an installation lap, and take it off, which, okay, yeah, you've confirmed that it's not going to fly off the car, but let's do a little more than that. Okay, so what do you think of it? I think it's a better-looking option than the Halo. Okay, yeah, but 
There's a lot of things that were better looking than the Halo. Including nothing, but... <laughs> I mean, I, I, the Halo I hated. Mm-hmm. I, this looks like they were... They just... I think that it looks like a nod to... We're really trying to close the cockpit. Well, that's what all of these things are. I mean, truly. And I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. But it does make it look a little Jetsony. It does. I, the real question that I've got is, um, given what transparent or mostly transparent things tend to do when you bend them to the light around, I'm very curious as to whether or not there's going to be any kind of distortion in the view. I just wonder if it's not overkill. I mean, can you not accomplish the same thing with less? I don't know. I mean, I'm not an aerodynamicist by any stretch of the imagination. I didn't even stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night to be able to fake being one. <laughs> um, but I just have that feeling like it's too big. It's too much. Could you accomplish something that gets you to 80% with something less? I don't know. I I, I don't know. You know, that the, there's the, the push to turn around and have the head protection, and we all know it's because of the Jewel Bianchi incident. But there's also been the acknowledgement that, yeah, we want to have the head protection, but in that situation, it wouldn't have helped. I, that's that's and that's I guess the, the other question. Is, that's the point is, you know, are we trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist? Look at your fellow open wheel, open cockpit racers. Nobody else is pushing for this. Maybe there's a reason. And they've got actual accidents that could have been. Yeah. Ar- arguably, IndyCar has a bigger problem with uh, the safety of their cockpit than Formula One does, but Formula One's pushing this. Right, and that part I don't understand that. And I think that's one of the other questions here is, if Formula One adopts something like this, will it drive adoption in not just IndyCar, but also the lower formulas? Mm-hmm. I know. This past week, there was a meeting of the engine or the power unit working group i didn't know there was a power unit working group there is because the question has been raised a few times already this year is when it comes to engines what's next okay we're not going to stay with with the the turbo hybrids forever so what do we do engine is forever right correct so what's the next option which direction do we go uh, obviously it is, I don't know, what kind of ridiculous engine can I come up with? Oil burning? Ooh, we're not there yet. Ah. We're not there yet. Foreshadowing. Um, the big headline, though, wasn't so much that the group met or that anything earth-shattering came out of it. The big meeting was who was invited to come out and who actually showed up. Who was invited and who showed up? Well, basically, anybody who makes engines was invited, whether or not they're currently in Formula One or not. So Volkswagen was invited. Porsche was invited. um, Ford was obviously invited. Chevy? Ford Ford did not show up. 
Um, I, Chevy probably was, again, Chevy elected not to show up. But some of the folks who did show up that, that have caught some folks' attention, um, Magneti Morelli, Zytec, Cosworth, and Aston Martin. Cosworth? Cosworth is back. Back? Well, they're back in trying to be involved in what's happening. This, this is not an indication that, that Cosworth is returning to Formula One. They left in 2013. Um, because they felt that the cost of developing the hybrid engine was too much and they could not sustain it, so they walked away. Oh, so they did what Honda probably should have done? Well, yeah, not even try. (laughs) Not even try. (laughs) Not that I think that that's not what Honda did. Well, I I think the reason why Honda elected to come in, besides the fact that... um, they were told a very good story that was imaginary and fake, but being a road car manufacturer and the belief that hybrids have a place in the road car market, mm-hmm. Honda felt it was worth coming in. And to be you know honest, Honda has a road car hybrid. Do they, do they still have one? Still, I mean, they go I back and forth. Still, I don't know. They did. They did. The Civic was a hybrid. They did a, a hybrid Civic. Yeah. I mean, I thought that they were still doing hybrids on their road cars. That's not where their engines are failing. No, it's not. Uh, but that, that's that been the big question is not only is Aston was Aston Martin there, but it wasn't like some engineer or something. It was the head of Aston Martin that was there. Interesting. Yeah. I know that that would just make you super happy. I think it would be pretty cool. I think it would be awesome. We'll see where it goes. Right now, it doesn't mean that anything has happened, but interestingly enough, they were there. You know, sometimes showing up is the first step. Yeah. Now, also recognizing, since we've mentioned Honda, recognizing that things have been a bit challenging for Honda and for new manufacturers in general. It's not exactly a friendly way to enter the sport. Uh, Ross Braun is talking that maybe they need to make some, some allowances for new manufacturers. You know, it's not as easy coming in fresh. Mm -hmm. So what Ross had to say is under the new regulations, and he's talking post 2020, We'll have to give consideration to new manufacturers who join after the start date and acknowledge they might need additional support initially. If you recall the token system, perhaps a new entrant might get more development tokens for the first couple of years. There are some smart initiatives you can use to encourage people into F1. We're not about to go in and negotiate special engineering terms for Honda. I'm not proposing that I go in and tell Honda how they should design their engine. But if we in F1 can help them achieve their ambitions, then we will. If Honda were to approach us for help, and if something, and it was something within our capability, as in not something that would create unfair competition, then we would help. Now he believes that there should be a performance differentiator in F1, but that the current technology, the current rules have made the technology so complex it discourages new entrants. So talking back to the old Cosworth days when Cosworth was dominating with their V8 engines. 
He says, where the engine was in effect, just a spacer between a chassis and a gearbox, because everybody had the same engine, I don't think that added a lot of value to F1, whereas there is value to having some differentiation. But it mustn't get too big to the extent that it becomes the dominant factor. Finding the balance comes from the point at which you start, because trying to apply corrections afterwards is tricky, emotional, divisive, and it frustrates people. Seeing where we are today is a great catalyst for ensuring that the new regulations control the, the potential for performance differentials and are attainable by more people. The current power units are magnificent pieces of engineering, but unfortunately, as has been demonstrated, you really do struggle as a new manufacturer to get on top of the challenge. We don't want to make it too easy, but we do want new manufacturers to be able to come in, do a respectable job, and be competitive within three years. Well, I think that's a great idea. You know what I would suggest? And I know this is going to sound crazy, but what if for the first two years they don't have engine penalties? Like they don't have to take 20 grid penalties to upgrade their engine. You know, I think it's more than just that. I think it's a matter of if a component breaks, you let a team fix it. Yeah. Now, I get you, you don't want the team's swapping out entire engines every single week but i'm and i'm not even suggesting that you necessarily allow that for every team that should have a program and should know what they're doing but for somebody that's brand spanking new that needs to be able to have the liberty to try things and to fail and to succeed and all of those things Take away some of those penalties that they incur. Maybe it's based on your points and your standing in Formula One. Say any team that's above sixth. If you're above six, you have engine penalties. You can't go and, and you know swap out more than five engines or something like that. But if you're below sixth, and you're having problems, you don't get the penalties. But the minute you go in and move up in the standings to that point, those penalties start to apply. Well, that would really tick off the sixth place person. But I get it. Um, and maybe it's a progressive thing where if you're in the top four, full penalties apply. If you're five, six, and seven, halves. All penalties are halved. But but the, the thing is, though, yeah, it might tick off the, the sixth place team once you move up to it. But the other thought is once you move up into sixth place, you're also getting more prize money. True. And if you're getting more prize money. You should be able to develop better. Well, I'm not even thinking so much that you should be able to, to develop better. But if you have a more reliable engine at that point and you have more prize money, you're not spending as much money on spare parts. Mm -hmm. Where if you're down in a lower area and you're blowing up engines every, every four laps, you need a lot of money in spare parts. True. So that's your encouragement to move up there is you get more money. And, oh, by the way, you don't need to spend as much money on the spare parts. So you want to stay up there. Yeah, but, I mean, you've got a point. you got a point. But, I mean, even if they did nothing else but just pull those artificial penalties away so that a Honda doesn't have to sit down on a Saturday afternoon and decide, do we put our, our guys 44 grid places behind – not that that actually exists, but 44 grid places behind or upgrade their engine. You know, do we do that yeah. or leave them on the first generation engine? I mean, what, how do you make that make any sense 
when they're so desperate to try to figure out what the heck's wrong. Give them the opportunity. Lengthen that that tether that says, you know something, you guys are failing. And because you're failing, we're going to give you a little bit longer lead. Well, th- there's one other thought to this idea of you do <coughs> you do those penalties based on championship location. So most of the teams, not all of them, but most of the teams on the bottom half of the grid are customer teams. And one of the complaints, whether or not it's true or not, is a completely different story. But one of the complaints is that those teams tend to get upgrades in software and in the engine after the works team. Mm -hmm. Well, now if you can turn around and you can roll out that upgrade to a customer team who's down in the bottom half of the grid, that should they happen to blow up the engine because the upgrade doesn't work like you expected and need to get that engine replaced and nobody gets a penalty for it. Your customer team becomes your test bed. Right. And it allows you to give them an advantage of a race or so. Exactly. Because if this works, they're going to perform better with that power unit that you can then roll out mm-hmm. to your works team or your and your top, your, your top teams knowing with some degree of confidence what's going to happen. I mean, I'm loving this idea. I'm sure that uh, Ross will be on the phone with me on Monday to discuss how I see the implementation going. Oh, with you, not me. It was my idea, but he's going to call you. I, I came up with the no point, no penalty part. He's going to latch on to that and think that that is a magical addition to the process that was, you added. So he will, he'll start with me and then he'll want to have a group meeting is what's going oh, to happen. Oh, is that what it Okay. Yeah, so. you'll get included in the group meeting. The larger meeting. But he'll want to make sure that he doesn't step on our toes for coming up with this brilliant idea. He wants to make sure that it's the bloke and the bird rule that gets put into place. It will get named. Yeah, okay. He, he has our number. It, it's in the C&D filing. <laughs> there was no C&D filing. I'm kidding. <laughs> the problem is that we have an NDA. Yeah. <laughs> that is the issue. Yeah. yeah. Speaking further of development yes. and engines and, and, and such, Nico Hulkenberg, Renault lead driver. Tall. That too. Not Julian Palmer. <laughs> <laughs> Another phone call we're going to get this week. <laughs> Daddy Palmer is not going to be happy with you. Yeah. Um, Nico Hulkenberg has said that because there's been a lot of comparison between Renault and Red Bull. And a performance that Red Bull has had running the same engines, possibly, you know, rebadged as a Tag Heuer, but running the same engines as the Red Bull cars, or as the Renault cars, and yet Red Bull's doing much better. Right. Not counting the engine explosions. When they don't blow up. When when they operate, they, they, they perform better on the track. Well, Nico's commented a little bit about this. Nico said that Red Bull are one of the top teams. Their rate of development has been quite impressive. From the start of the season to now, they made big steps forward. We did too, but obviously not at the same magnitude. We are not on that level yet. It's little things. They're not transforming the car or putting 20 points of downforce on. It's tough. It all needs to come together for us. We need to do a really good job. Sometimes we need a bit of luck and help as well, people to drop out. He says the team's moving in the right direction. 
there's good stuff in the pipeline. They're just not developing it as quickly as the Red Bull team is. And I think that's the big concern that everybody has had when it came to giving Red Bull engines or selling Red Bull engines is they're a very strong team. Well, and they're very developmentally <coughs> strong. Mm-hmm. They have a great program to do iterative parts. They have arguably some aerodynamic geniuses beyond Adrian Newey. I mean, Adrian can only carry the team so far. But they have they are, you know, on the top end of the aero program. And you combine that with an engine that's working for them, they're they're the customer team that's getting more out of their engine than the works team is. Yeah. And that's that's the thing that disproves the rule that customer teams don't do as well. For for most engine manufacturers, right? So we, we're going to get a little little deeper into the engine. So so I need the disclaimer. Science. So a lot of. Mercedes' success with their engine mm-hmm. has been their compressor, the, the turbo and, and compressor design. They've split the, the turbo up. Instead of it being one big unit, there's part in the front, part in the back of the unit. It, it, it's this engineering witchcraft. We'll just call it that. That's but not every, science. It's but witchcraft. Ev- but everybody knows what they've done to accomplish this and the design that they put in place to do this. So... Uh, Renault's F1 engine chief Remy Taffin was approached about how this is working for Mercedes and the struggle that Renault has had to produce the power. The struggle's real. Yes, the struggle is real. And and they were asked, you know, as you're, you've got free reign now, there's no tokens, you can change the turbo, you can do all of this stuff. Will you copy Mercedes? Because it works and it works well. Well, Remy Taffin told Autosport, yeah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> okay. He says, our engine is as it is. We decided to keep the turbo at the, rear, at the rear for some good reasons. There is also no good reason to change it as we don't see a lap time benefit from a car perspective. So from where we put the elements and how we assemble them, they are where we like them to be. But it is fair to say that the real emphasis is on the internal combustion engines plus the turbo. That is what you do, you do work on, and that is what I guess Mercedes is doing. They are not spending that much time on the energy recovery system. They keep developing the internal combustion engine. So, wait. He says that there's no good reason to change it. They don't see a lap time benefit from a car perspective, but the Mercedes is handing them their lunch. Well, maybe he doesn't think that that's the thing that he has to change. Maybe there's something other than that. You know, there might be another piece of the secret sauce. I I don't know. I mean, the the reality is I don't fully understand the witchcraft of the engine design. I don't. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's that's why we have the, the disclaimer. And so thus, I don't know how much dividing that turbo does to the end result, but... I also get we have an engine group that's talking about what the next generation is. And at some point, people are going to start closing the gap and then they're going to change the engine. And so they're going to have to start developing the new engine. So I don't know. The truth of the matter is 
Reno would be better off if they could get their hands on some of the arrow that comes with Red Bull. Because Red Bull can put that engine in a different spot than Renault can. Yeah. And that's not just driver talent. No, it, it, it it's the overall philosophy that Red Bull has had knowing Renault's philosophy of the engine and the fact that Renault has always produced an engine for Red Bull that is down on power compared to the Mercedes engine and the Ferrari engine. And they have designed their car based on that mm-hmm. um, with the thought being that from an aerodynamic perspective, if they can be faster in the slow corners, they make up that power difference. Right. Faster in the corners is better than being faster in the straights, given the way the tracks lay out. And they've done the calculations for that. And it's a smart calculation to do. If there's Mm -hmm. more corners than there is straight, you spend more time in the corners than being faster where you spend more time should net you a better lap. So the other topic that Remy Taffin talked about, which it keeps coming and going, is this talk about burning oil for fuel. Back to your little thing. What... I didn't realize there wasn't a whole lot of talk about it is that on the eve of the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, the FIA came out with yet another clarification on the rules regarding burning or or, or regarding what fluids were acceptable to use as fuel. Let's put it that way. Okay. What they said is that no team was allowed to use any chemicals in its oil that could help with combustion. So where this one came from is that questions were raised about the matter by Mercedes, who had been focusing on areas that Ferrari may have been exploiting to boost its performance. So Mercedes pulled a Ferrari and wrote a letter. (laughs) Now, Ferrari strongly denied that they were doing anything against regulations, but Remy Taffin said, you never have these kind of discussions and clarifications from the FIA if something hasn't been done. But I have to say that as far as we are concerned, we did not really pay attention to this last clarification. We had much more to do rather than get the last bit out of this kind of things. All righty. Yeah. That's a story that will never die. Yeah. Speaking of stories that will never die. Actually, before we get to story that will never die, because this is related, um, we apparently missed this during safety car at uh in I think everybody missed it a lot of folks did um and and what i don't know where we got this from um i don't have a clean recording from channel four on this but the recording i have came from channel four okay okay this is a recording that occurred during the red flag period as everybody was rushing to get everything in place. And the recording that I have, it, it's there, there was audio and video. It's Ben Edwards and David Cothard talking us through as the cars are getting lined up. And it appears that the FIA may have broadcast this audio without the normal icon on the screen to let you know that audio happened. So Ben Edwards continued talking over what was happening. Now, maybe NBC Sports caught it. I don't know. But it's worth sharing this little incident that came from Kimi Raikkonen's car. (laughs) 
one of those laps steering wheel lots of steering wheel yeah still be a lap down once steering everybody wheel. gets up to full hey. racing speed hey. as we heard it steering wheel so somebody tell him to give it to me and the car's Come on. fired up in <laughs> now i pull that out now specifically at this point in the show because I want to once again drive home the point that we do really, really like it when we get to see and hear emotions from the drivers. Well, emotions from the emotionalist always helps, too. Well, that, too. I, well, see, I don't believe anymore the the argument that Kimmy is the Iceman and, and that there's no emotion from him. Because in the car, every time that he's on the radio, you certainly hear emotion from him. True. So I, I don't, as opposed to somebody like Valtteri Bottas, who no matter how hot it gets, he does always have that same tone. And he's pretty consistent. And, and it is very cool and collective. Kimmy, you do hear him yell. Mm-hmm. And you do hear him get upset. And you see that emotion from Kimmy. You don't get that from Valtteri. No. Now, off track is a different story. Kimmy is much calmer and much more level-headed, and there he is more emotionless. And see, I have a theory. Okay. I think that Kimmy's English is far poorer than Valtteri's. That's what I think the difference is. I think that Kimmy's lack of speaking is not that he is emotionless or colder or calculating or any of those things. I think that he doesn't have good command of English. And maybe. And therefore, he's so uncomfortable speaking in English that he just doesn't. And if you listen to him in most interviews, when he does speak, it's really hard to understand him. And he's got marbles in his mouth and all of those things. He mumbles. And, and he mumbles yeah. and he... And I think that that's not a sign of Kimmy being Kimmy. And isn't that cool? I think the man doesn't have good English. And Formula One's requirement is that they speak in English. Yeah. Um, and particularly when they're speaking to the English press, the English-speaking press, they have to speak in those languages. Now, I do know that they get leeway, like if they're speaking, to, if a German driver is speaking to German press, he can speak in German. Yeah, you can speak in, in, in the local languages. But in general, all of those interviews, all of that podium okay. stuff that's done is all done in English, and that's the requirement. And so I've just got this theory that his English is not the greatest and that that's, that's what drives it. Um, I mean, they also have the, the rule that the radio calls are all in English, too. Which sometimes gets ignored. Well, yeah. If you're Ferrari. Right. Because they're Ferrari. Because they're Ferrari. Um, but I do think that pushing Kimmy off to the line without a steering wheel is about the funniest thing what happened and and again i don't know if channel four broadcast it because we were half paying attention when this was going on but there is video of what happened and how this went down so the car's in the garage steering wheel is sitting in its customary location on the nose of the car just in front of the driver they get ready to start pushing it out, and one of the engineers walks over, and I don't know whether he was told to grab it or not, but one of the engineers walks over and grabs the steering wheel. I'm guessing with that thought of we're about to move the car, we don't want the wheel here because we don't want it to fall because it's super expensive. Mm-hmm. Grabs the wheel. He remains within about 
three feet of the car at all times. So it's not like he grabbed the wheel and just walked away and disappeared. They move the car out. He's along with the car. He's out of Kimmy's line of sight. He, he, but he's within about two to three feet of the car at all times. But I don't think he had a headset on. So I don't think he could even hear that Kimmy was yelling for his steering wheel and wanted it back. <laughs> so, <laughs> And I don't think that he realized that I don't think that there was that realization of Kimmy doesn't have a steering wheel. You know, I don't. No, he wasn't, I, think he, I think he knew that because, again, he stayed with the car at all times. Well, he stayed with the car, but, you know, there was that whole if you watch the video, the car is in the line of the pit lane cars from during the red flag period. He's getting in the line to go. Yeah. And they're pushing him that way. And cars are starting to move in front of him. Yeah. He's going to have to do something. And that's causes well, Kimmy the, the, to have the, the panic of steering wheel. Yeah, the, the cars actually weren't moving. They, they hadn't reached that point that they had left the pit lane yet. They may have been starting up, but they hadn't moved yet. Okay. So. From my perspective, I thought that I could see, like, the first car starting to, like, move forward mm. or that type of thing. Because he was coming into the back of the pit lane. So now we get to the negative emotions. Yes. Now, as you'll recall, when we when we last spoke, there were plans on July 3rd for the FIA to sit down with Sebastian and review what happened and determine if the penalty that was put in place was appropriate for the violation and the actions that occurred. Right. So Maurizio Arriva Vene and Sebastian Vettel met with Sean Todd, met with several other officials with the FIA. They reviewed the telemetry and the video and the actions that occurred and made a decision to take no further action. Now, what it sounds like is that that decision was made after Seb had a meeting with Sean Todd, which I believe was before the big meeting with the FIA. That decision was made after the meeting with Sean Todd. Well, it does sound like Seb has done his due diligence of contriteness. I don't know if it's genuine, and I will not speculate on, on that. I I just don't know what's inside Vettel's head, and I'm not going to speculate. But I find the timing suspicious. Okay. Well, and, and that and that's my big problem is there was no public statement, there was no public acknowledgement that he did anything wrong until after that meeting. Right. I believe it was Tuesday. I've got to double check because we've got the the thing. He, we've got the story coming up. I believe it was Tuesday after the event. It may have even been Thursday, but it was before the FIA met. Reportedly, Sebastian did manage to find a way to contact Lewis and apologize for the situation. And there was a text and some, but there was nothing public until after the FIA meet. And that's where I've got the problem. Well, I'm, I don't know. I, I have a lot of feelings about the whole thing. On the surface, I believe wholeheartedly that it was an unsportsmanlike behavior. Now, is a 10-second penalty appropriate? I don't get to judge. 
what I do say is that we listened to David Cothard give his opinion as a former driver um, about what his thoughts were about both the incident and the reaction. And on one hand, I really respect Cothard's feeling. We have a governing body. We have stewards. They mm-hmm. made a decision. That decision is final. We don't get to go back and rewind and question every decision that they made. Otherwise, we'd be rewriting every race that, that rolled. Right. And on that, and from that perspective, I could fully understand why July 3rd, yes, they re-reviewed it, but they had no further action. Because, again, that sets a precedent of, well, you could always go back and do that. On the other hand, I disagreed with David Cothard when Cothard's analysis of what he thought really happened was he thought Vettel got angry, pulled alongside uh, Lewis, just gestured and in the gesture tapped the wheels and he that it was unintentional tapping and I don't see that I'm the the part of me that looks at that video and granted I'm not a driver I don't know but it looked like it was very precisely wheel to wheel I'm sending you a message Sebastian has admitted that this was a this was deliberate contact and again I don't have a problem that Sebastian came up alongside and gestured that he was pissed off Mm-hmm. Don't have a problem with that at all. And, and again, it goes back to we want to see the emotions from the drivers. It was the deliberate contact as a result of it. That's what I've got a problem with. And while I agree from the perspective of, you know what, we don't want the FIA coming in at every opportunity and second-guessing our stewards, and our stewards make the final call, where I have the problem is they had the tribunal. Where they had this, they had this meeting to to look over everything, and it wasn't that. Well, we thought that the stewards were made the right decision, and we, we shouldn't be taking any action because they, they're the authority. It was we decided not to take further action because Sebastian apologized. That's the word that came out. Mm. It wasn't that we decided to that that the decision that was made on the spot by the marshals was good, and we're not going to touch it. It was that Sebastian apologized, so we're not going to take further action. And yes, an apology should be good enough to move on and, and to, to have closure. But when the apology is made as a result of this kind of a thing, not because of your actions, but as a result of this, beha- that, that you could get into further trouble, which is what this appeared to be, that's where I've got a problem. Well, I don't, I mean, I don't like it in a lot of ways. I think Vettel has an anger problem. Yes. I think it is boiling over to the point that I'm, I feel he is becoming dangerous. And that bothers me. It doesn't just bother me because it's being taken out on my favorite driver. It's, I feel like his anger is boiling. And I Mm -hmm. think that that's problematic. And I think that he should get slapped for that personally. And despite what Jean Todd wants to maintain, it's not the first time it's happened. No. No, and it's not. Um, And like I told you last week, I feel that Lewis went exactly for the high road and Mm -hmm. just the perfect way. You got to think about the kids. Now, as part of, and and this is what's not clear. One of the things that's not clear. There's a lot of things that aren't clear. But after the the meeting had occurred, 
and and I've heard some people say that Sebastian agreed to post a public po- to make a, a, a statement and post a public apology. I've seen others that said that that it was just it happened afterwards. But after the the apology was made to the FIA and to Jean Todd, um, posted to Sebastian's website, and I'm going to just say this is probably Sebastian, whether it was somebody else or not, I don't care. Posted to Sebastian's website was the following statement, and he has maintained this throughout the the buildup. He posted a statement that's moved to another part of the site now. It says, Dear Motor Racing fans, Concerning the incidents of Baku, I'd like to explain myself. During the restart lap, I got surprised by Lewis and ran into the back of his car. With hindsight, I don't believe he had any bad intentions. In the heat of the action, I then overreacted. And therefore, I want to apologize to Lewis directly, as well as to all the people who are watching the race. I realized that I was not setting a good example. I had no intention at any time to put Lewis in danger, but I understand that I caused a dangerous situation. Therefore, I would like to apologize to the FIA. I accept and respect the decisions that were taken at today's meeting in Paris, as well as the penalty imposed by the stewards in Baku. I love this sport, and I am determined to represent it in a way that can be an example for future generations. Again, the problem I have is that's a statement that should have been released four days earlier, five days earlier. I I understand. But because of poor timing does not change that he apologized, and we have to move on. And that's part of what racing is. Now, the the one penalty that Jean Todd did put out as a result of this incident is that as a result of this, Sebastian Vettel will no longer be taking part in any of the FIA's driver safety campaigns for the rest of the year. Well, you know, that's a big deal. Just putting that out there. You are unsafe. He, he will, however, apparently be doing some other efforts to... Um, or outreach to younger drivers to teach them appropriate sporting behavior at the track and on the track and things of that nature. But no more driver safety campaigns this year. (laughs) Alrighty. Lewis has said his own words. He said, I still have the utmost respect for him as a driver and will continue to race him hard through the rest of the season. Um, he did. He is continuing to say that, that Seb disgraced himself by driving into him. Um, he does say that uh, he has accepted Sebastian's uh, apology and is moving on. He still has respect for him and will race him. Mercedes has also said that they now consider the matter closed. Hey, if everybody else does, then we should also. So the other bit of controversy that has come out this weekend okay carlos saints was asked about his future because he has a crystal ball well no it's 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 because he's been at toro rosso now for three years right he's considered to be a promising talent by a lot of folks including the red bull organization Mm -hmm. but toro rosso isn't known for retaining drivers for a long period of time three years is about the limit before they send those drivers either away or, or they send or they promote them up to Red Bull. And there's no indication that anybody's moving at Red Bull anytime soon. So Carlos was asked, 
you know, what's the deal for next year? Or, you know, you, you stay in with Toro Rosso, you go in somewhere else. And Carlos has said that he does not see himself remaining at Toro Rosso for a fourth year. Okay. Christian Horner, on the other hand, has said, um, no, he's going to be here next year. <laughs> Christian Horner says he's under contract. We've exercised his option so he's, as well, so he's under contract. We have an option on him for next year and the year after. He'll be in a Toro Rosso again next year. Okay. So he says no, and he says no. He says yes. So it's a he said, he said situation. Now, here's what I'll remind everybody. Contracts in Formula One are only as good as the paper they're written on and the check that somebody's willing to write to get them out of that contract. Right. So... Yeah, he may be under contract, and if he wants to stay in Formula One guaranteed and have a seat, he just needs to keep performing. He's under contract. But if he wants to get out of the mid, if he wants to, to try and move up in the grid and potentially get higher up and out of the mid pack, yeah, I don't know if this is really the case. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that that's a harder, harder sell to say, you know. It doesn't take someone to go, hey, you know, you're a promising talent and a few million dollars will get you in my car. And you're not going anywhere at Red Bull. So, and quite frankly, Red Bull has other up and coming drivers too. Well, since so. we're, there, there's that too, because Pierre Gasly can't move. Of course, the, the one seat that nobody's talking about right now would be Daniel Kvyat's seat. Correct. And... He's continuing his up and down performance, right? So let let's throw this idea out here. You know, it's silly season, boundless base baseless rumors, because that's what silly season is until things get signed. So you've got Carlos, who doesn't necessarily want to stay at Toro Rosso; he wants to move up, and then you've got Danny Kvyat in his situation. Mm-hmm. And then you look over at Williams, mm-hmm. who is arguably a more promising team. Arguably. Where you've got Felipe Massa on a one-year contract. Correct. Who desperately wants to stay in Formula One, or at least in racing. And then you've got Lance Stroll. Who you dislike immensely. I, I think... What happened, as great as his performance was in Baku. In Canada. And, and well, he, he Canada was points and Baku was a podium. I, I, I don't think he is all that. And I am not sure that he is the talent that, say, a Carlos Sainz is, or for that matter, a Daniel Kvyat. But, see, they could keep, Williams could keep strong. They could. And let Massa go. And that that's the question. Do you turn around then and possibly try and buy Carlos Sainz out of his contract to bring him over? Or do you turn around and know that, you know, there's probably a pretty good chance that Kvyat's going to get cut out. And Kvyat's got clearly more experience than uh, Lance Stroll. Do you bring over Kvyat, but knowing that Kvyat has baggage? 
See, I think Kvyat. See, I think that Kvyat's got baggage. I think Kvyat needs and to I find agree. a different sport. And I agree. So I. But think, again, let, let's look at what brought Lance Stroll in, in the first place. Not true. But but I think I think Carlos Sainz would be a better option. Right. And actually, what I think would be the the best option, if you are a a Williams is you look over at somebody else who, who I'm pretty sure has a one-year contract, go to Pascal Verline, replace Lance Stroll with Pascal Verline, and buy Saints out of his contract. I think that could be a fairly strong team. Interesting. Interesting. And, you know, getting Verline doesn't screw Monisha nearly as much as I'd like it to. It doesn't screw her at all. Um, actually, Pascal Verline has been uh, very complimentary of Monisha, and that's been some of the drama that's going on right now over at Sauber, is that um, in the statements around who said what and when and how folks got informed, Pascal Verline was told that Monisha was leaving by Monisha. Erickson got told that Monisha was leaving by the team owners and team management. Interesting. Yeah. That might mean that Pascal's left on the block because if he's Monisha's boy. Mm-hmm. And again, that also plays back into the rumors that the team has been trying to quell that they are favoring, favoring one driver over the other. I always laugh at those rumors because I don't care what team you are. You're going to favor the driver that's winning. Yeah. I mean, I don't care, but okay. So the last bit of, of news that we have is that uh, going into the Grand Prix in Austria, there were changes made after the free practice or the Friday free practice sessions to turn six. Not well, actually, um, turn nine in particular uh, was edited this year uh, because drivers were hitting the baguette curbs <laughs> and uh, they were damaging their car. Correct. So modifications were made to eliminate the risk there. Cool. I have nothing on baguette curbs. I'm sorry. You're looking at me like, come up with something <laughs> fabulous here. I got nothing. Nothing. Wahoo. We we didn't damage cars. However, the Red Bull ring has got gravel, which is not typical in a lot of the racetracks these days. They have gravel right now. We'll see if they keep gravel. You know, um, gravel does damage, so that'll I, be interesting. Well, I, be, I believe the Red Bull ring is Helmet Marco's track. Mm -hmm. So maybe Helmet will say that, no, we, this is Formula One. We need this, and I'm not going to tweak my track for MotoGP or anybody else. We are doing this, man. You never know. never know. Okay, so are we up to the Red Bull ring? Yeah, I just talked about it. No, the qualifying yesterday. Oh. Are we yeah. ready? Sure. Okay. So in free practice three, your boy and mine, Hamilton had a brake failure. You mean Lightning McQueen? Knowing Lewis, 
because this is Lewis. And I'm actually surprised the words didn't come out of his mouth that he didn't. Uh, I'm kind of surprised that he didn't turn around and say he deliberately took a substandard break so that he could give a good show for the fans. And he wanted to just up his game and up the challenge. Because nah. it is a Lightning McQueen type comment, you know, just like he's decided that he's going to let his drink bottle go. That's how we're going to look at every one of his failures. Anyway, he had a brake failure. And he wound up having to take on a gearbox. Yeah. So he entered qualifying knowing he was taking a five-grid place penalty. And Mercedes, by the way, in, in response to taking the new grid bo- or, or the new gearbox, has said that this is unrelated to the incident with Vettel in Baku. Um, they do not believe that there was damage done to the gearbox from that collision. Um, so this was something else that occurred. He needed a new gearbox. Five-grade place penalty. So even though he qualified in third, he will start in eighth. Yes. Um, Which is good because Lewis likes the challenge of having to, to weave through the field and overtake cars. We like watching <laughs> Lewis overtake cars. <laughs> so just get off of it, okay? But... In his second ever Formula One poll, Volteri Botas has... Volteri. You said Volteri. I tripped over my own tongue. Volteri has pole in the Red Bull ring. Unfortunately, anger management poster child, Sebastian Vettel, has P2. Now, Sebastian has come out with his strategy and has publicized his strategy for... The race. Drive faster than Valtteri? No, drive faster than Hamilton. Oh, well, yeah. (laughs) Beat Hamilton is his entire philosophy for the race. So, wait, and and if I I didn't know you were going to go there, I would have had it ready. We do have the Nico Hulkenberg or or the Nico Rosberg comment to such things. Mm -hmm. Just beat Lewis. (laughs) That's, That's the goal right there. Um, so that is the, even this year you can rely on me from now on. So Seb has shown his cards and shared with us his strategy for the Austrian Grand Prix. Um, other than that, I didn't think there was anything terribly notable except that Williams didn't get out of Q1. They had really big problems. Red Bull didn't do particularly well. Um, cause the, even though it's their track, it's not their track. Yeah. Um, so, um, oh, and Alonzo yet again out qualified his teammate Stoffel the Flying Waffle. Yeah, and I'm not sure who has the new engine. Origin- Stoffel. Uh, originally, they were both supposed to have it, but only one got it. Alonzo has the first generation engine, and that was why it was news that he outqualified Stoffel. Then, okay, he outqualified him by one grid place. I mean, it's not like it yeah. was like, a, a, you know, it was not embarrassing to our flying waffle. Um, other than that, I didn't think I saw anything that was like terribly enlightening um, or shocking. No, because right now everybody's still focused on Sebastian. Right. Like I said, poster child for anger management. We shall see how he does in the race. Should we go watch a race then? Can we go watch the race? And on that note, we'll cue Barbie. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 
Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye now. Bye. Bye bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye bye now. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is there is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? OK.